Blog Talk Radio.
Welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Sunday, uh, May 8th, uh, 2022. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire reports. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the continuing war in Ukraine and the developments uh, within the states aligned uh, with the Russian Federation. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has paid a visit to the military deployed in the northwest of the Horn of Africa state. The Sudanese Congress Party has rejected participation in a dialogue with the military coup makers in Khartoum. And Zimbabwe has been placed on high alert in light of the rapid escalation in COVID-19 cases in neighboring Republic of South Africa. In the second hour, we continue our coverage of the African National Congress Eastern Cape Provincial Conference being held in uh, East London uh, in the Republic of South Africa. Finally, we look in detail at the economic implications of the war in Ukraine as it relates to energy resources in Germany and other uh, Eastern European regional states. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned, and uh, we'll take a musical interlude uh, with the group uh, Viva La Musica, uh, led by Papa Wumba uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Let's listen in.
Bonsoir chers amis La première chanson que, que je vais interpréter tout à l'heure s'intitule L'esclave Là, je remonte un tout petit peu, quatre siècles avant, 400 ans avant, pour vous retracer l'histoire de l'homme noir. Je vous disais que ça fait 400 ans. Et jusqu'à nos jours, l'homme noir continue toujours à être l'objet de souffrance. En passant dans ma chanson, l'esclave bien sûr, je cite le nom de quelques grands leaders noirs, dont en l'occurrence Martin Luther King, que nous connaissons tous. que fut une grande chanteuse noire américaine à cause de sa maladie l'homme blanc n'a pas pu n'a pas voulu interner cette dame dans un hôpital où l'homme blanc dirigeait et Bob Marley qui a lutté aussi à travers sa chanson, à travers sa guitare lutter, 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 lutter et à un certain Nelson Mandela qui, 23 ans durant, ce monsieur est toujours en tol. C'est pas possible. Au seuil du 21e siècle, ces choses ne peuvent plus se passer comme ça là. Bien sûr parce que nous n'avons qu'un seul créateur. Que tu sois jaune, que tu sois rouge, que tu sois blanc, que tu sois noir, nous n'avons que la même couleur du sang pour la sauvegarde de l'humanité. Unissons-nous. Unissons-nous pour la sauvegarde de l'humanité. C'est pas possible.
Je ne chanterai jamais de la politique, car je hais la politique. C'est la politique qui est en train de diviser ces mondes de Dieu. Je ne chante que la vérité.
Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 
J'aimerais simplement avoir votre avis sur ce concours, puisque vous avez quand même voulu. Vous avez bien accepté de l'animer. Vous êtes un quinois. Vous êtes un des grands musiciens, un grand sapeur de Kinshasa. Alors, euh, quelle est votre opinion sur ce concours euh, Kinshasa ma ville Soit que ce soit en France ou ailleurs, on ne cesse de parler de ma ville. Ma ville qui est Kinshasa. Kinshasa, c'est une ville qui est très chaude, Kinshasa où les gens circulent 24 sur 24 et je remercie beaucoup les organisateurs de ce concours. Il faut que de temps en temps ce genre de trucs euh, reviennent. Vraiment, j'en suis beaucoup fier et je suis très flatté euh, pour mon invitation puisque pour moi ce soir, ce n'est pas une grande télé. Euh, bon, parce que je suis ami à, à François Bélanger et il m'a prié coûte que coûte, papa, fais-moi plaisir de passer à la télé. Je lui ai donné mon accord et me voici. Et pour le les téléspectateurs aussi. Et voilà, on va terminer avec euh, Anna Lengo.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the music of uh, the architect of uh, Viva La Musica, uh, Papa Wemba, and of course, uh, along with his orchestra. And uh, that was uh, taken uh, from the soundtrack of a television appearance in uh, Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo, now known as the Democratic Republic of Congo, from 1980. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. And these are some of the headlines uh, in uh, today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the current uh, military conflict in the Eastern European country of Ukraine. The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, uh, sent congratulations uh, with the 77th anniversary of the victory in the Great Patriotic War to leaders and people of Azerbaijan. Armenia, uh, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Moldova, and Tajikistan, uh, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, the Donetsk People's Republic, and Lugansk People's Republic, as well as to the peoples of Georgia and Ukraine. <clears throat> the Kremlin announced on his website uh, earlier today, in his congratulations, the president of Russia particularly emphasizes that on this day, we pay our tribute of appreciation and respect to the warriors and home front workers who crushed Nazism at a price of countless casualties and hardships, the statement says. The Russian leader underscored in his congratulations that it is a common duty today to prevent a restoration of Nazism that brought so much suffering to the people of various states. It is necessary to preserve and hand over to our descendants the truth about the wartime events, our common spiritual values and traditions of fraternal friendship. The telegrams say, overall, uh, Putin wished new generations to be worthy of the memory of their fathers and grandfathers. Addressing the leaders of foreign states, uh, Putin relayed words of gratitude to the veterans, uh, wished them good health, their welfare, and longevity. The Kremlin said, <clears throat> In his congratulation uh, telegrams for the leaders of Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics, the Russian leader noted that our servicemen, just like their ancestors, are fighting together to liberate their soil from the Nazi filth and expressed his certainty that victory will be ours, just like in 1945, the Kremlin said. The Russian president scored in his address to the veterans of the Great Patriotic War and people of Ukraine that a revenge of ideological successes of those defeated during the Great Patriotic War is unacceptable. <clears throat> According to the address also published at the Kremlin website Sunday, Putin pointed out that 77 years ago, thanks to the bravery and heroism of the front fighters and partisans, resilience and dedication of home front workers, Nazism was crushed, <clears throat> which sought to enslave Europe and which brought pain and suffering to tens of millions of people. The countless casualties sustained in the name of our common victory have become essential for our life and freedom. The memory must not be left in oblivion, the Russian leader underscored, adding that unfortunately Nazism today again raises its head and seeks to impose its barbaric inhuman order. In general, the Russian leader sincerely congratulated Ukrainians, veterans, and citizens of Ukraine with the Victory Day, calling it a common great celebration. 
the Russian president wished the veterans spiritual fortitude, good health and longevity and peace and fair future for all people of Ukraine. In other news, in the Horn of Africa, uh, there are all the signs that seem to indicate another round of war is likely in northern Ethiopia. This is according uh, to an article that was published in Borbana. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed uh, made three trips to different uh, military bases of the Ethiopian Defense Forces in less than two weeks. The latest trip, uh, which happened uh, on yesterday, uh, was to Humera in the northwest of Ethiopia, an area that the Tigray People's Liberation Front has been attempted to control with the aim to control the route to Sudan. Abiy Ahmed's message has been consistent. Readiness to ensure the business of defending Ethiopia at any time. I have noticed that the defense force is in a position to restore peace whenever it is disrupted. Uh, he has said in a remark uh, he made after visiting the defense forces in Humera. Just like wolves, our army attacks in unity. And just like a lion, it fiercely defends its territory, he added. In his earlier trips uh, to the two other military bases in northern Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed told the army to be ready at all times. The Ethiopian government this week said the TPLF is engaged in extensive mobilization for another round of military campaigns. In what was said to be an annual political consultation, Ethiopian Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Affairs Minister Demike Makunin told a European Union representative that despite the humanitarian truce to ensure the delivery of humanitarian aid, the TPLF is preparing to make an invasion. Another indication of the impending war is that the Bresson Gabriel Michael, leader of the TPLF, wrote an open letter to the UN Secretary General saying that it is considering, quote, other options, unquote, for the peaceful way of resolving the conflict is not working. Earlier, uh, the Ethiopian government accused the TPLF of not withdrawing all its forces in the Afar and Alhambra regions of Ethiopia. In December of 2021, Ethiopian forces, with the support of the national military uh, forces aligned uh, with uh, the defense forces, uh, also the Afar militia, and uh, special forces dislodged the TPLF forces from most of the Afar and Amhara regions. Abiy Ahmed's administration ordered a halt to the march to the Tigray region of Ethiopia on grounds of the long-term interests of Ethiopian unity. Many vocal Ethiopians who are active on social media criticized the government at the time, saying that the government's decision will give the TPLF a chance to buy time to reorganize its defeated forces and plan another invasion, which seems to be happening at this time. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. The Sudanese Congress Party said yesterday uh, that they will not participate in a meeting facilitated by the United Nations, the African Union, the Intergovernmental uh, Authority on Development Mechanisms uh, next week. The tripartite mechanism plans to convene an intra-Sudanese meeting uh, between May 10th and 12th to discuss ways to settle the political crisis in Sudan. The forces of for freedom and change, the FFC, say uh, the talks uh, should focus on how to end the military role in politics and establish a civilian transitional authority to achieve the, domestic, the democratic uh, domestic transition. 
For their part, the military says that the process should bring all the political groups to reach a joint platform, stressing that they would hand over power only if they end their divisions. In a statement issued on yesterday, the Sudanese Congress Party, which is part of the Forces for Freedom and Change Coalition, reiterated uh, their rejection of the proposal made by the tripartite mechanism to take part in the preparatory meetings. This rejection has been based on our previously declared position within the FFC that we will not be part of any political process that does not not lead to end the coup and its consequences and to restore the path of civilian democratic transition through a full civil authority. The statement further stressed that this preparatory meeting does not pave the way to achieve that goal because it misidentifies the nature of the crisis parties and issues and legitimizes the arguments of the coup for which its leaders want to hide their motives. The head of the sovereign council refuses to hand over the chairmanship of the council to a civilian leader chosen by the FFC to give their economic activities to the government and to merge the rapid support forces, the RSF militias, into the national army. The military rulers pledge to create a conducive environment for the dialogue process through three measures, including the release of political detainees, the end of violence against protesters, and the lift of the state of emergency. However, legal groups say they are still in jail over 30 political activists of the resistance committees. Also, the police forces recently used excessive force to disperse protesters and killing one of them. And finally, in the southern African state of Zimbabwe, as cases of COVID-19 continue to surge in neighboring South Africa, Zimbabwe has gone on high alert to guard against the potential spread of the COVID-19 virus. In the past week, the country recorded a 58% increase in the number of new cases, with an average of 63 new cases being reported daily, as compared to 40 during the previous week. Speaking during a post-cabinet briefing on Wednesday, Information, Publicity, and Broadcasting Services Minister Monica Mushangwa said there is a need for the country to exercise caution. Cabinet advises that in light of the 58% increase in the number of new cases the country recorded during the current week, coupled with a massive increase in the number of cases recorded by our neighbor, South Africa, in the last seven days, there is a need to protect the country against the negative impact of a surge in cases, she said. Minister Mushangwa said the country needed to employ cautionary measures, emphasizing the need to prioritize the role of phase two of the vaccination campaign blitz, which kicked off on Tuesday. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And in concluding this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. 
If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to, of course, uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
the voice of the legendary uh, Phyllis Hyman, your move, your game, my heart. And uh, my name is Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, we're here for the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast for today, uh, Sunday, May 8th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And over the Pan-African uh, Newswire, as well as uh, yesterday's uh, Pan-African Journal, uh, we covered uh, in depth uh, the African National Congress Eastern Cape Provincial Elective Conference, which is taking place this weekend in East London. And right now we're going to go to a briefing uh, delivered uh, by uh, the ANC uh, spokesperson, Pule Mabe. And, of course, he is at the conference in East London. And many people within uh, South Africa, as well as internationally, are following uh, this conference uh, let's listen in. Well, hello and welcome. You're watching SABC News Channel, independent and impartial. This is The Globe. Thanks for joining us. I'm Sipiso Umakwita. We're going to start the program by taking you straight to the East London uh, International Convention Center where my colleague Samkele Maseko is standing by the Eastern Cape. Uh, elective Congress still experiencing problems with the issue of credentials. Samkele? Okay, guys, are you are you are you ready? Yeah, because I need to go back to plenary. So. Okay. No, thanks, uh, colleagues. Uh, we just felt that we should uh, come back again and uh, give you feedback uh, of the proceedings. We had uh, uh, learned and noticed that if we do not uh, update you, uh, some of the destructive messages that are being planted out there to suggest that conference uh, is collapsing could end up being believed by uh, the many viewers out there who are really uh, watching all updates that relate to the conference. The conference of the ANC is a very important platform uh, for communities in the provinces where those such conferences are happening. So you would imagine Almost uh, everyone, uh, Arcaders, those that uh, work with uh, the movement, uh, even in government, everyone is uh, really glued on their television sets, on their radios, to try and uh, really establish what could be happening here. We can assure them that the conference uh, is proceeding as planned. We had met through the steering committee of uh, conference with uh, all of the regional secretaries uh, to attend to all of the issues that would have been raised earlier as it related to the adoption of uh, credentials. We also got a briefing from the National Dispute Resolution Committee on the work that uh, they've also been doing to make sure that all of the issues that were brought before them are accordingly processed and an outcome is then placed before conference. 
we are hoping because as, 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 as now in plenary in a closed session delegates are interacting with the work of the steering committee because the steering committee now came back to now place uh, its own report uh, before conference once that is done we expect that they will then move uh, to adoption of credentials that will then uh, allow the other processes uh, to then unfold so where we are we still have got a conference full in session there is nothing that suggests to us that the conference will be disrupted we are doing everything we can in our power to make sure that uh, we rise and provide the necessary leadership working together with the province with the leagues alliance partners we who are here uh, national executive committee members who are here members of the ndrc almost each and every structure of the anc necessary to run conference is here and doing what has got to be done to make sure that when we rise here we have got a leadership with a renewed mandate that will have emerged out of a democratic process that all of the members uh, will have participated fully in and that they too will have been given the space uh, to voice whatever issues that they may have what is interesting about conference of the anc is that when kdas raise issues they are doing so because they want to contribute to the credibility and integrity of conference and may satisfy themselves that the issues they may they may have had as concerns have been uh, attended to so we, we are quite comfortable with what is happening here all of course it's taking a bit of time but we imagine that is because of the size of the delegation that we are having to deal with i mean just branch delegates alone are well over 1300 then you add the 10 percent of that constituted by uh, your leaks it's another 138 or so delegates that would be your rec or ptt because the constitution of the anc is such that in the conference of the anc elective conference of the anc 90 percent of those who make up that conference would be delegates elected from branches to come and represent their own branches as basic units in those uh, conferences the remaining 10 percent is then shared between if it's a pro in, a, in, the, in the case of a province if you've got a provincial executive committee it will be the provincial executive committee and then it will also then be your other leagues the veterans league if it exists in that space the anc youth league and the anc women's league because these are important auxiliaries of the african national congress they do participate in the full political life of the anc so we felt we must uh, deal with that and then uh, if there are questions from yourselves which may require us to clarify we do so. <coughs> but rest assured conference is proceeding the move is uh, that of a conference here yes the, the report from the steering committee with what the delegates are currently engaging or are there new issues that are arising um, I, I don't know what you're asking fully because you said things that are happening inside you are not going to discuss them with us but I feel like uh, no don't worry on this one this one this is a very important aspect even for the viewers at home okay this we can quickly clarify okay are there new issues or are there well it's, it, issues? it's not necessarily new issues <laughs> what 
what we did as the steering committee was to then isolate all of the issues and then say what are the key issues that require a resolution from our part and then we dealt with those but of course there will be other issues that delegates bring up and our duty is to provide the necessary clarity if those issues were really brought to our attention prior does that help yes Well, from where we are sitting, we have not really arrived at that point. Uh, if there have been matters of security just around uh, your access control and all of that. But inside the uh, conference plenary, it's really ourselves with the delegates. And did well, it was earlier on because we, we, we had received a tip of ourselves as well of a situation that warranted that they, they could go in there and check. Remember, we have got a duty, just as, respons as the responsible leadership of the African National Congress, we have got a responsibility to make sure that each and every delegate that is here, including yourselves, feel protected and safe. So when we get tip-offs of things that might uh, undermine or compromise the security of those venues, we ought to be seen acting in the interest of the people that are attending. We, I mean, we need to make sure that yourselves go back to your newsrooms uh, safe and happy, not with the outcome, but because you were given a platform to be able to do your work. So that's why we have to, when we get the tip of that note, something that requires our, t our attention, we have to look into those things. Yes. leadership looking at probably adding another day for this conference, which was meant to be closed tomorrow by President Is it wrapping up tomorrow or already thinking about another day? Well, of course. I mean, we are already thinking about what is practically possible under the conditions. Uh, if conditions permit that uh, we go beyond, we'll have to make sure that those that are handling logistics uh, could be able to do the necessary arrangements. You would imagine that when you sit at a conference, you have to hire a venue, and that venue is hired according to a number of days. You also have got to allocate your resources, budgetary resources, to be able to fulfill the convening of conference. So there are a number of those implications that uh, when you've got this time pressures, you've got to look at. But that is a matter that uh, both the steering committee working together with uh, the PTT would have to look into and say what are the implications if this must go beyond uh, its, its planned time frame. With the SABC, you mentioned something like the participation of structures by virtue of their existence in the process. Mm. I overheard uh, some delegates uh, complaining that it seems the veterans league uh, are not allowed to participate because seemingly they, they don't exist in the province. Is that being sorted out and 
that being one of the, uh, the well just for the record yes of course that has also been an issue from what we're dealing with they were part of those uh, structures that were accommodated as part of the 10%. Just to clarify you, the, the participation of structures of the ANC in a conference does not necessarily have to relate with the structures existing at that uh, level. You'd imagine a province like the Eastern Cape surely has got the uh, veterans. I mean, great luminaries of the African National Congress, your Nelson Mandela, Owar Tambo, came from here. So there's no way that it's not possible that you'll not have veterans in the Eastern Cape. For instance, when we go to a national conference of the ANC, we say 10% gets to be given to uh, the leaks or structures, NEC and all of that. We can go and decide to take Amos, who is a branch member of the ANC Youth League and make them a delegate. You'd recall what happened in Bulogwan. There are many comrades who came from provinces who were made part of the national delegation of the ANC Youth League. It happens like that all the time. So I'm, I'm just making, picking up on this uh, lift experiences that you are aware of because we have been covering politics for a while, that we have done it before. You know, in the, when we were in Eteguini the other week, Kaidas would, uh, would also have uh, selected some of the comrades who come from uh, lower structures to be able to fit into that uh, 10%. Because when, when, the 10, when you have got a higher number of delegates, means the 10% will be higher. So when you slice it according to the structures you have, those that, so, so that now they start having more, start sitting with uh, 30 or so. Now if the structure only has got uh, 20 in terms of its own uh, composition, it means it must go and get the 10 someone. It will have to be from amongst its own members who are in members in good standing of that structure. So the situation of the Veterans League really fit into that province. When is this conference discussing? When is this conference going to commission? Because clearly, with you still stuck on credentials, it essentially means if you defer for another day, you are just deferring for voting, and you have minimal time for policy discussions. When are you going to go to these commissions, or will it these commissions, just like the 2018 conference of the ANC in KZN? which never went to commissions till today. Thank you. Okay. Just to, to assist there, uh, you, were with, you were with us in Mpumalanga, if I recall. So we are most likely to apply the Mpumalanga approach if they proceed. The Mpumalanga approach works like this. When they do nominations for additionals, for instance, at the point when you are preparing your ballots, you then allow them to break into commissions. And then you will be picking, you will be collecting comrades, delegates from commissions to go and vote. So, so that's what we normally do because then it, it becomes a, a bit effective, it moves faster for us. We did the same in Eteguin and it worked. You know, so so we, 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 over the years, I think we, we too have developed the necessary capacity to understand what needs to be done to make sure that when conference rises, at least it has also carried forward that critical part of making sure that discussions are also held by those who are delegates. Because this is really about uh, uh, them shaping and determining the part that the ANC has to take in the province. So if they don't have those discussions, you'd imagine that then they take away that role of conference, of producing a program. Because that's what conference must do. 
Well, I'm not sure what you want me to, to, to really elaborate on. Tip offs are tip offs. You need to just make sure. It happens all the time. I mean, we, we have got, we always have got security personnel in conferences. And all the time, they have to, sometimes it does not necessarily have to be a big threat. You, you have to make sure that from time to time, you do what it stops, they call sweeping. So when people have been out of a venue, when they go back, you have to make sure that you conduct the necessary sweeping, just in case there might just be something that uh, requires you to act upon. No, not like that. Remember when, when people are out of conference and then someone picks up something that they feel need to be attended to, they will say so. But in a conference, we take everything serious. You understand? <laughs> so, so I'll call Shalom Zalo in a conference. Everything is serious. To check if is it really a globe or is something else. So understand the good why would we be guided by legal opinion? I mean, we're an organization that has got a constitution, and the constitution of the organization really outlines and articulates how we're expected to do our work. We are not a, we are not a judicial body ourselves, so we can't be guided by legal opinions on how we run a political party. If there are matters that were placed before the courts, and the courts had pronounced themselves, as people who had subscribed and affirmed constitutional democracy, we will then uh, align ourselves with such. But in terms of running our conference, we are really guided by our own guidelines. We are guided by the constitution of the ANC, our own internal processes, to make sure that uh, really everything is done in accordance with those processes. But the minute we start to run conference of the ANC guided by the court, then we are becoming a judicial body. So, 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 so the ANC cannot divorce itself from its own constitution, which outlines and articulates how process of the ANC are supposed to run. When all provinces of the ANC prepare for regional and provincial conferences, including ourselves at the national level for national conference, we'll develop guidelines. These guidelines will really outline the roadmap and the work that uh, our structures are expected to do and what they are supposed to meet as a threshold for them to be able to participate at the conference of the African National Congress. Uh, Just on that, uh, as the sentence is what will happen to the manipulated branches, for example, the WB Khubusani region as well as the Khrisani region, where they allowed to vote? And in answering, some getting suggested that if they proceed, is there a chance that this conference will not sit? Well, this conference is sitting. I mean, will not, it's something of yesterday. You are in conference, that's why you are here. No, I mean, what would you become it? The conference is sitting. Conference is sitting. We are in conference. That's why you conference is Conference is proceeding. So there's no chance. I mean, how can how can you have a chance of something when you are in it? You are already in conference, but we are looking for chance. Chance here. 
conference is sitting. That's why we are coming here to give you updates. These updates are necessary to make you understand what conference is dealing with. So that's why, I mean, we really respect the role that you, you guys in the media are playing. So we have to come back and give you feedback from time to time. That's how much we value your role in this conference. If we're ignorant of your role, we'd not be coming and giving you uh, updates. So conference is sitting. But there's a threat that you might call us. Members of the media, I have clarified myself, in conference of the ANC we always have security who deal with access and all of that and make sure that everyone who's at conference feels safe. We don't allow, for instance, people uh, to bring dangerous weapons in a conference of the African National Congress. We do that all the time. It's not, we are not starting it with uh, the Eastern Cape. All our conferences run like that. Now, if there are issues that you hear whispers, let me call them whispers, if you pick up whispers while you are busy in the conference vicinity, you cannot then want the national spokesperson of the ANC to legitimize whisper, gossip. No, he got one hand. Okay, uh, are there any new takers before we take uh, I'm not sure if I, maybe I didn't hear you properly when I was here at the back. Hmm. Now, I just want to ask, currently, I know this is not to ask about what's happening inside, but I just want to ask about where currently you are in terms of, I know, because you had to adjourn because there were issues of adopted credentials. Hmm. Has that part, as, that part of the process, has that happened? That, that, is, that is what we assist with inside. We, we came back, we met with the regional secretaries. It is happening. Is it happening currently? It, we are talk, as we are talking, we are talking as it happens. Uh, yes. I wanted to touch on that issue fully of what is happening inside. My understanding is that inside they are discussing the report of the steering committee on credentials. Then they will move to the issue of whether to adopt those credentials or not. Hence the question about possibility of this conference policy. It's not possible, it's not here saying yeah. this, conference, this conference, according to the alert issued by the NC, was meant to be wrapped up today. Yes. Day three, you have not moved an inch. Mm -hmm. So it's not here saying it's not possible, your conference is delayed. And the question about you being adamant that is it not going to collapse is a genuine conference and is a genuine question. No, 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 I, no I'm, I'm not saying the questions are not genuine, but I agree, I mean, gossip can also come across as genuine. No, but it's not gossip that we have not moved an inch. Well, I'm not sure about that one because uh, we are here. We are here. We had, we, had, we had set a meeting of the steering committee, had done the work that we are expected to do. And we paid, we are paying serious attention, like I said, when we spoke earlier, on each and every concern or dispute that is raised, which can ultimately undermine or compromise conference moving ahead. Because it is in our interest that a conference of the African National Congress, this important platform, you know, a festival of ideas, can be able to proceed, <laughs> can be able to proceed and uh, produce outcomes that will contribute to the living conditions of our people on the ground.
I take, I take the issues that uh, Simon and yourself raised seriously. I also have got a responsibility myself. Maybe you, you, you don't realize in the media, very often when we bring these things up, when we live here, we also do more deep stick ourselves. So your questions do enlighten us to also be aware of what we might not know. So don't think that what I'm saying is gossip, I take it lightly. No. It's a matter that when I get back there, I have to brief the leadership. I get it now in the ANC. I just happen to be spokesperson for ANC. So I get to pull it So I get to pull it out. So I get to Kedas, I'm now going to be talking to the media. These are the issues. I go to Pastor Lo, I feel like I'm talking about the media. I very so. So, so when you have raised issues, yeah, no, can raise the issues. Can raise the issues. There's no difficult divorce and the But leadership, there is this issue that is coming up. It's important that we put our because and it you move around. People talk to yourselves. So, as we are the man, Anthony Joy, we will not be serious, Pella. If, 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 no, I mean, we, we know, we pick up things. Earlier on, when we were here, you raised issues, and I want to raise it with them that some of these issues that are coming from the media are as follows. Because there are things that we might not know. That you people out of being here interacting with everyone, because in any event, I can't believe it. So you can talk to anyone. Just grab any leader, ask questions, and when they tell you things, then you pick up that, but this might pose as a threat. Uh, you see, you are contradicting Ms. Stella, or Mrs. Stella, Lisa Abraham here. She came on this platform and said, it's chaotic inside. There are those who simply do not want to adopt credentials, and their patience is winning thin on them. And if push comes to shove, they will simply put it to the foot. No, that's fine. I when, a lead, mm. when a leader of your own party, a PTT member, I assume the spokesperson of the PTT, goes to the extent of saying it's chaotic inside. If a person says it's chaotic, those are the similar things in 2017 mm. that ultimately led to the Festival of Chess, which currently is a festival of uh, okay, no, no, that's fine. Just to, just to assist you, some guests. I'm not contradicting Stella at all. At the point when Stella spoke to yourself is before this exercise. And at that time, indeed, it was chaotic. But we had met, as, as, as the steering committee of conference, we have met with regions and then prevailed on comrades on the need for us to make sure that conference doesn't collapse. Now, when we came in back now, we are now placing that report whose work was a consequence of the chaos earlier. But since we've been back here, are you getting a sense of chaos? No chaos. We went back, we spoke to the regional leadership of the ANC across uh, different regions. We, we are even allowing mem uh, delegates in plenary to engage that report. The expectation is that when that when they complete with that, will then move and adopt credentials. You do not adopt credentials without allowing cadres to raise their own issues. Because the outcome of conference of the ANC must be embraced by everyone who is in conference. You can rush to vote, but if you rush to vote on, the, on, on, on credentials that are not entirely accepted 
by those that are in conference. You, you know what will happen? That leadership that will emerge is going to be undermined. And when that happens, it brings in all manner of things in the ANC. Divisions, we disintegrate. And when an ANC disintegrates, its ability to govern and lead people better also gets to be compromised. So we need to understand that. So there's no contradiction. It's just that we, we, we are now dealing with uh, that earlier chaos by making sure that we assure our comrades that every issue that they had raised has been uh, sufficiently addressed. Have you not taken over communication powers from the province? No! Not at all. Not at all. You are being coyote. Yes. Okay. Two more. Your answer. Thank you. 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 Thank a collapse conference, issues about concerns about the security, you fail to then give a proper answer and explanation, and then going backwards to admit that there was a point where there was chaos. Can the NC maybe give us a little bit of honesty and insights to, is the security there because there was chaos earlier? That doesn't connect for me. Um, you say that you're not contradicting Ms. Stanland, but at the same time, you're shutting us down when people ask general questions about concerns around the collapse. Surely those two things feed into one another. No, 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 I'm not. Uh, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, I did say that one of the immediate tasks I will do when I leave here is to make sure that I also place what your journalists are raising with the steering committee because they could be aware of things that I'm not aware of. So to avoid getting into a long thing, it's better. So then when I come back again, then I'm able to say, okay, from what uh, Simon raised, what Spamanda raised, what Lizaga raised, this is what I've established. So, so that's what I'm doing. But, but there is uh, no point that we are not going to be able to attend to this. If, if there is an issue uh, or, or we get what I, I called earlier a tip-off, it doesn't have to be a major risk, city. Anything that suggests that we need to really look into the welfare, the safety, the comfort of delegates, we have to attend to. Okay, Ryan, I'm, I'm, I'm addressing you being testy with Janice asking those particular questions while there's legitimate cause for those questions. That's actually what I'm addressing, Ryan. No, that's, no I accept that. That's fair. I, 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 I accept that, and what I will do when I leave here, I will go and uh, do my little investigation, and if I discover something, I will come back to journalists who have raised that, those specific questions and clarify. I know. Yes. Don't you think it is regrettable and also a shame that this conference that has been postponed for more than three times is facing this ailment about the issues that had been raised before and that have led to it being postponed in the past? Well, uh, I mean, of course, uh, it is quite concerning but we are doing everything else uh, in our power to make sure that conference doesn't collapse. It's actually in our interest, in the interest of this leadership, to make sure that conference can proceed and do what it was convened for. So we, we need to rise and provide leadership. We need to appeal to the conscience of everyone who is inside plenary to work together with us, the provincial structures, the original leadership, to make sure that conference can do what it was convened for.
Can we just allow Kanuti to prevail as if I'm noting you? Lizaka, and I think it's going to be the. Yeah, you're doing out of their stage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, but I just wanted to ask. I mean, looking back to the uh there were talks of a performance during the week leading up to this conference and saying that some members of the PCT were requesting postponement. Hindsight now, looking at where you currently are with the issues happening there. Do you think that maybe you should have just taken their advice and postponed this conference? Well, I don't think that uh, we have really arrived at that point now. We will be able to make a determination, if any, uh, once we have been able to engage with all of the issues. Where we are now, we are doing our best to make sure that the necessary leadership is provided. We prevail on our delegates so that conference can really conclude on what it was convened for. Uh, um, just clarifying question it's around your constitution and, and what it says. Does the constitution allow for delegates to be changed uh, during conference? Well, in terms of the co guidelines of the ANC, because that is where you will really deal with the issue of delegates. So the, the fact that you have got your National Dispute Resolution Committee, which was made a permanent structure, uh, by the 54th National Conference of the ANC. If out of resolving disputes, the NDRC arrives at a determination that uh, then alters a delegation of a certain word, such will then be implemented in that way. They've got those powers. Okay, uh, the 2017 uh, the 2017 conference was plunged into chaos as a result of disagreement over uh, credentials. 2022, we are faced with a similar problem. Is there anything that the ANC is missing, or maybe that the ANC is failing, just to master? Because it seems this is going to repeat itself again in the future in different conflicts. Well, we, we have not really arrived at that conclusion ourselves, that there, there could be challenges in terms of how we uh, do our own credentials. What we need to really do as the African National Congress is to make sure that we are thorough, meticulous in terms of our own uh, processes. The new membership system that we are now utilizing, which we have used to run the provincial conference of Mpumalanga and all the other regional conferences that said, is actually beginning to assist us in terms of isolating some of those uh, things. We are hoping that going forward, we, we, should, be, we should not have problems. You know, what, what sometimes gives rise to, the, to these challenges would be suspected manipulation, gatekeeping, you know, those things. When you must adopt credentials, they then come up. You know, so, so, so you try and deal with those things. I mean, one, one, I can share with you my experience as the former Treasurer General of the ANC Youth League. When we had left our regions and uh, when we have left our regions and uh, provinces to run with some of the things, you would have uh, really interesting notiness, you know, cadres just using death certificates. So, so you have to deal with those things. Up until, by the time we left the youth league, we had dealt with that road. Because it was always creating a stalemate. When you get into a, a provincial or regional conference, a comrade just stands up there and says, no, Marama comrade, what 15 in this area? 15 of them have long passed on. 
so, so now sometimes the conduct of individual cadres of the African National Congress can then delay uh, conferences authenticating you know, stuff like credentials, which are critical to the life of a conference. So, so now in the ANC, we are seeing that there is a more improvement, there is an appreciation of process where issues are raised and uh, they have not been resolved at the provincial level, you escalate them and attend to them at the national level. Okay. Yeah, but comrades, you need to, to start wrapping up. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Kule. Uh, Ovino of from My question is, now that you know that the, the, the credentials are happening in your statement right now, but seemingly they're still taking their time, why, why don't you just postpone the, 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 the event as usual? Because seemingly we're not going anywhere with this. People are, are, are here with their own, some people are here with their own logistic money, they're postponing frequently. Surely, surely where are you guys going with this? Uh, well, I, 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 I hear your concern, uh, but the fact that we are now going to plenary and giving a report of the steering committee to, together with the regional secretaries, that alone should uh, signal progress. As I walked out of plenary to come and talk to yourselves, uh, we were really allowing comrades to bring up their issues. I'm sure by when I get there, the life of conference would also have moved uh, further forward. Okay. okay. Thank you very much. Uh, we will come, we'll, we'll come and give you updates where issues have been raised which we could not uh, sufficiently clarify. We will then co we'll come back and make sure we give you the feedback. Where's my mother? Well, it's been a lengthy press briefing there at uh, the East London International Convention Centre. It's all around the Eastern Cape Provincial Elective Congress. Uh, it's been underway for the third day today. More disruptions, especially over the issue of credentials. So it's really come down to two regions and the voting powers of the National, uh, Provincial, National Provincial Task Team. Um, Okay, let's do that again. So it's really come down to uh, the voting of uh, two areas that are under contestation, including the voting rights of uh, the uh, National Executive Committee, the Provincial National Executive Committee there. So uh, delegates want to uh, have the status clarified there. So earlier on the disputes uh, were about the Regional Executive Committee's right rather uh, to vote along with the Veterans League and um, according to party insiders, the Credentials uh, Committee um, had to be referred back to to sign off and as you heard, Mabe, the National spokesperson of the ANC, when he was asked the question whether or not plenaries will go ahead, and uh, if so, when will voting, you know, get underway? He said that uh, they might have to end up reverting to what the Mpumalanga province had to do in terms of voting. That too was uh, also. 
affected by disruption. So the Eastern Cape, it was expected to have at least 1,532 delegates uh, that were to attend, but we understand, according to the figures that we had, only 1,494 have registered. The number of voting delegates for each region, and I want to uh, point at the one that's uh, currently considered problematic. You remember that there was uh, a lot of talk about the WB Hubisana region. That has 114. It went to court to try and interdict the conference. So uh, lots of uh, eyes on this conference as the disputes, many will say they failed to be, you know, ironed out will lead to questions about the strength of the person who will be vying for the top positions. Uh, all eyes on President Ramaphosa, although pundits say he is close to Oscar Mabuyani and uh, his winning uh, that uh, could strengthen his position. There are those who are raising the issue of contenders. Uh, the names of uh, the Treasury General Paul Mashati that have been thrown up, uh, the names of the former House Minister Dr. Zulin Kiza also have been thrown up. And uh, it all comes down to the unity slate. Uh, there have been efforts uh, to between the Mabuya and Matigizela camps to have people rally around at least the same candidates. Uh, those talks uh, uh, have failed according to some, but we will go back to Sam Kele, myself or my colleague who is there at the East London International Convention Centre to find out a little bit more about the disruptions there that's at uh, the Eastern Cape um, Elective Congress. All right, let's uh, speak to my colleague Abongile Jankis, who is uh, there at the Congress. Abongile, we just uh, watched that lengthy press conference, and the, some of the journalists accusing uh, the ANC national spokesperson of being stroppy when asked certain questions which they deem important, which they hope would help them understand what is going on when he referred to quite often the issue of rumors and conjecture. Just take us through what we've just seen there and Welcome back. And uh, that was a briefing uh, from Pule Mabe, the national spokesperson uh, for the ruling uh, South African African National Congress Party uh, at their uh, Eastern Cape Provincial Elective Conference, uh, which has been taking place uh, this weekend. Uh, many questions uh, surrounding uh, the deliberations, and uh, if you want to follow, uh, these developments uh, in the Republic of South Africa. Just go to our website at the Pan-African Newswire, uh, the Pan-African Newswire website. That's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment for our program. <laughs>
welcome back. And of course, you're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. And uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikaway, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit uh, on the early morning hour of Monday, uh, May 9th, uh, 2022. And uh, right now we want to, of course, uh, move into a segment uh, dealing uh, with uh, several issues uh, related uh, to developments uh, on the African continent uh, now as uh, well uh, as in the future. And of course, we want to uh, bring you uh, some information uh, related uh, to a number of very, very important issues. We just want to remind you as well that uh, if you want to uh, have access to today's uh, program, the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, just go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Uh, you can also read the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll listen to this uh, news segment uh, dealing with issues in Mali, Sudan, and also the legacy of uh, the late uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. Let's listen in. Hello, everyone. This is Eye on Africa for Wednesday, April 27th. Here are the headlines. Mali accuses France of violating parts of its controlled airspace a week after drone pictures emerged of soldiers covering corpses with sand near a military base. France said it was being framed and blamed mercenaries belonging to Russia's Wagner Group. We take a look back at the life of Kwame Nkrumah, who died half a century ago today. He was considered the father of Ghanaian independence, but was also seen by many as one of the founders of Pan-Africanism. And a non-fungible token of Nelson Mandela's original arrest warrant raises 113,000 euros at an auction. Our correspondent in South Africa will have that story coming up. Military rulers in Mali have accused the French army of repeatedly violating controlled airspace in order to spy on its forces. In a statement, the junta said it had recorded over 50 breaches of airspace over Mali's center and north. The accusations come after a blame game last week over drone pictures of soldiers near Gothi covering corpses with sand. France 24 Sam Bradpiece has more. These spying allegations pertain to footage shot by a French military drone and published in the media last week. They show soldiers burying bodies in the sand near an abandoned French military base in a place called Gossier, uh, which is a rural commune in Mali. France believes that the ones who were doing the burying were Russian mercenaries attempting to stage an atrocity to make it look like the French had committed war crimes in the area. Now, we know that Russian mercenaries have been in the country for months now, possibly even since September. Um, and Mali has always tried to frame the Russian presence there uh, as part of a wider training mission in the fight against jihadism. Now, the publication of this footage has really angered the Malian government, the junta, which has been in power since 2020. It has said that France is engaged in espionage and has violated the country's national airspace. Now, as for the French Defence Ministry, I contacted them. They had no immediate response, uh, but they said they would be uh, taking up this question of espionage and responding to it in a press conference on Thursday. 
Mali's communications authority has decided to permanently ban France 24 and sister radio station RFI in Mali. Parent company France Media Monde vigorously contests this decision and will explore all possible avenues to do so. We will continue to cover the news in Mali, and France Media Monde has pledged to implement technical solutions to allow Malians to continue to have access to both of our channels. More than 20 people have been killed in an attack on Muslims in the northern Ethiopian city of Gondar. It happened during the funeral of a local Muslim elder. According to the Islamic Affairs Council of Amhara, the attackers, quote, fired a barrage of heavy machine guns and grenades. The same religious body is blaming the massacre on, quote, extremist Christians. The cemetery where the attack occurred is close to a mosque and a church and has been the subject of an ongoing dispute between Muslims and Christians. In a statement, the regional government vowed to hold the perpetrators accountable. Authorities in Sudan have released two former government officials in an effort to pursue trust-building measures amid efforts to end the country's political impasse. Khalid Omar, a former minister of cabinet affairs, and Mohammed Al-Faki Suleiman, a former member of the ruling Sovereign Council, both walked free from a prison in Khartoum this Wednesday. The criminal court rejected a request by prosecutors to renew their detention. The pair has been charged with several offenses, including betrayal of public trust. They were arrested in February during a crackdown by military generals on anti-coup groups. Since it was announced on April 14th, the asylum pact between Rwanda and the UK has come under increased scrutiny. Members of Rwanda's opposition are denouncing the deal, calling it unsustainable and unethical, and are accusing Paul Kagame of trying to improve his standing with the West. Laurent Bersacher has more. It had been hailed as a landmark immigration deal, but the asylum pact between London and Kigali has since come under fire from all sides. The leader of Rwanda's Green Party was the latest to bring up ethical and sustainability concerns over the controversial agreement. There will be conflict. Then there will also be conflicts on natural resources, competition. We don't have land, and if the Americans are going to settle here, that means we'll be given land. They will be also uh, have given other, put into the national budget like others because that money is only for five years. Afterwards, we don't know what will happen. The five-year deal, which was announced mid-April, would see asylum seekers arriving in the UK automatically deported to Rwanda. It's been criticized by Rwandan politicians, but also by British officials who accused Boris Johnson of trying to offload the UK's immigration problem. International organizations also raised concerns over Rwanda's dubious human rights record and the feasibility of hosting tens of thousands of refugees in one of the world's most densely populated countries. Yet some Rwandans remained optimistic after London agreed to contribute over 140 million euros towards the scheme. I think this money is going to help the country to build roads and hospitals. It's going to help infrastructure, so the population is going to benefit a lot more than people think. It's not the first time Rwanda has agreed to take in another nation's refugees. A deal with Israel saw around 4,000 African migrants deported to Kigali between 2014 and 2017, most of whom have since fled the country. Fifty years ago this Wednesday, Kwame Nkrumah died at the age of 62. Not only was he considered the father of Ghanaian independence, he was also seen by many as one of the founders of Pan-Africanism, just like Egypt's Gamal Abdel Nasser and Congo's Patrice Lumumba. Florent Rodeau and Emerald Maxwell took a look back at his life.
naturally, for us. <laughs> His dream was a strong and united Africa. Coming to Ghana is merely postponed. Political theorist and revolutionary Kwame Nkrumah made a name for himself in 1949 when he founded the Convention People's Party and called for civil disobedience. The British colonial authorities threw him in prison. This was, paradoxically, the beginning of his political rise, and his party won the 1951 elections. Nkrumah was released from prison to triumphant celebrations in the streets of Accra and became prime minister of an autonomous government. Five years later, he consolidated his power in new general elections, winning three-quarters of the seats and forcing London to concede the country's independence in 1957. The Gold Coast became Ghana, a member of the Commonwealth and the first of Britain's African colonies to gain majority rule independence. But relations with the British Crown quickly soured after Ghana became a republic in 1961. As president, the Redeemer, as he was called, turned eastwards to the Soviet Union and China. He was ready to welcome any subversive movement and quickly became a potential adversary to Britain. But in Ghana too, the tide was turning against him. Dissenting voices were stifled and the Krumah became the target of at least four assassination attempts. Perhaps the pinnacle of Nkrumah's career came in October 1965 when he hosted most African heads of state in Accra for a summit of the OAU, a precursor to the African Union. This would be his last opportunity to explain his pan-Africanism to his peers. The fierce anti-colonialists advocated cooperation between all people of African descent and for the political union of an independent continent. Nkrumah was overthrown in a military coup in 1966 on his way to China. The father of Ghanaian independence never returned to his homeland in his lifetime, living out the rest of his life in Guinea, where Sukul Touré gave him refuge. He died in 1972 in Romania, far from his beloved continent. A special emissary to Ghana had told him why. This Wednesday, South Africans marked Freedom Day, commemorating the country's first free elections in 1994 when Nelson Mandela was chosen to be president. Recently, a non-fungible token of Mandela's original arrest warrant raised 113,000 euros at an auction. The funds went towards saving Lily's Leaf Museum, the once secret headquarters of Mandela's liberation movement. The Heritage Sites trustees are relieved that digital certificates of authenticity allow heritage items to generate money to counteract some of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. A Cape Town-based tech startup created the biggest marketplace for non-fungible tokens or NFTs on the African continent. They're called Moments, and their most talked about NFT is of Nelson Mandela's original arrest warrant issued by apartheid police in 1961. Basically, it's a digital certificate of authenticity. Um, if you buy a really expensive piece of artwork, chances are it will come with a certificate to prove where it comes from, what its history is, typically it's called provenance, and this is just a digital version of that certificate that is absolutely secure, incorruptible, and it lives on a decentralized blockchain. That's what an NFT is. The NFT fetched 113,000 euros at a recent auction. The money goes towards reopening Lily's Leaf Museum in Johannesburg, which has been closed for two years. In the 1960s, Lily's Leaf Farm was the secret headquarters of the liberation movement where struggle leaders like Nelson Mandela hid. 
Nicholas Wolpe later founded the museum. He was trying to reopen Lily's Leaf in 2021 when he was approached with the idea of creating non-fungible tokens to raise funds. You are able to create replicas in such a way that they have an inherent value and you're able to sell them and generate income without selling the crown jewels. This means the original warrant for Mandela's arrest can remain safely treasured at Lily's Leaf along with other precious historic artifacts. Now that enough funds have been raised, trustees like Temba Wakashi are excited to start renovations. We're going to be uh, cleaning, we're going to be cutting grass, uh, we're going to be trimming trees and letting the voice of Lily's Leaf come back again uh, to the South African heritage landscape. Lily's Leaf will be open to the public again soon. That does it for this edition of Iron Africa. Thank you for watching. Live from Paris continues right after the break. Welcome back. And uh, that was a series of news reports uh, dealing with events on the African continent. And uh, we'll take a break and come back uh, with our final segment uh, for today. Please let me sit down beside you. I've got something to tell you. You should know. I've just couldn't wait. Not another day I love you More than words can ever say Honey, leave me Without you It's okay Thoughts of you, babe, just linger 
the legendary uh, Otis Redding, and I love you more than words can say. And, of course, uh, we've been following very closely uh, the war in Ukraine and its impact uh, not only on Europe, but also Africa, Asia, the United States, and the entire globe. Uh, We have talked about uh, before the fact that Russia produces a sizable uh, portion of the energy uh, that is utilized uh, in Europe. Uh, They're also uh, involved in agricultural uh, trade initiatives uh, with Africa, uh, with West Asia, and other geopolitical reasons throughout the world. Uh, This uh, report will include discussions on uh, the dependency of Germany on uh, the Russian Federation uh, natural gas as well as uh, oil reserves. Uh, Let's listen uh, to this report. Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, Germany says it could back immediate EU ban on Russian oil. But how will it deal with the economic costs? Modi's European tour kicks off in Germany. We look at what the trip is all about. And the EU is charging Apple with abusing market power in mobile payments. How important is fair competition in a digital payment market? To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Germany is ready to back a European Union ban on Russian oil imports. Economy Minister Robert Habeck of the Ecologist Greens had said Germany would back a EU-wide ban, regardless of whether the stoppage was immediate or by the end of the year. Finance Minister Christian Lindner said the German economy could tolerate an Im- immediate ban. The comments came as EU officials prepared to unveil the latest round of sanctions this week, which may include a call for the ban by the end of the year. Is the latest sign that Chancellor Olaf Scholz has shifted his cautious approach to winning the country off Russian energy, even if they have economic costs at home. For more, we are now joined on the line by Gal Luft, Director of Center for World Political Economy at Austin Technical University in Turkey. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Good to be with you. Um, so does this mean a full European ban on Russian oil is, is coming? And, and what would that mean for Russia? Well, uh, from the statement that we heard, we already hear that there is a ban, but this ban will only apply uh, by the end of the year. Um, And uh, if my ears don't mislead me, I think that that means that uh, Germany and other European countries will probably buy more Russian oil in order to stockpile uh, as much oil as they can, so when this ban goes into effect, if it ever does, uh, then um, they will be more uh, insulated, which could mean that they will be buying more oil before they buy less oil, which means that Russia will only make more money. Okay, okay. But, um, I mean, for weeks, Germany has been a major opponent to an EU-wide embargo, but what makes Olaf Scholz's government change its mind, do you think? I think uh, some of it has to do with uh, peer pressure. Um, they understand that they are uh, not in um, in par with uh, um, the actions of other European uh, 
uh, countries. Uh, they feel that they have not been uh, aggressive enough. Um, but I really think that uh, the, the, the issue is here. You know, oil is, is a fungible commodity. So if you really want to hurt Russia, um, by shifting uh, the oil exports from one country to another, you don't really solve anything. In other words, if Europe uh, doesn't buy Russian oil, someone else will, and Russia will be making the exact same amount of money. So if the objective is to diminish the, the, uh, the to punish the Russian economy, diminish Russian oil revenues, then this uh, solution is really hollow. It, it, it's meaningless. It's not going to uh, deliver the desired outcome. However, if you want to show your people or you want to show your allies that you are doing something and it's sort of a feel-good solution, then um, there is some logic in it. But again, it's not going to hurt Russia. Okay, but what do you mean by someone else? Um, what country can buy the same amount of oil as Europe does now? Well, if Europe buys uh, uh, the same amount of oil that it did from Russia, it will go to other stores. It will go to uh, Canada, it will go to uh, maybe Iran, it will go to uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, that means that all these countries will sell less to other clients. Uh, and that means that those other clients will find the oil in Russia. So, you know, the oil market is like a big uh, bathtub full of uh, oil, and all the consumers sort of um, have straws in which they suck the oil out of this bathtub. Uh, so it doesn't really matter who sends uh, oil to whom because the market will uh, quite quickly uh, um, create an equilibrium. And uh, that means that uh, unless you reduce the overall demand for oil, um, the, the, the Russians will be able to find uh, alternative customers. Yes, but given the pressure from countries like the United States, um, it has this kind of um, long-arm jurisdiction. And do, do you feel, uh, do you think that maybe countries, other clients who want to buy Russian oil, are they likely to face secondary sanctions from the U.S.? Well, I think uh, that would be uh, incredibly reckless uh, by the United States because then the United States will have to sanction all of the world, essentially. It will have to sanction uh, its, its closest allies. It will have to sanction um, um, Japan. It will have to sanction India. It will have to sanction South Korea. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and sanction all of the world, uh, well, um, this is not going to be a pretty uh, world anymore. I think as it is, the U.S. has exceeded its uh, uh, ability to exercise its long-arm jurisdiction. Um, at some point, also, I think that the European voters, European customers, will rebel against this policy uh, because uh, look what's happening in Europe. You know, prices are going up. Uh, there is inflation um, reaching a two-digit level. Uh, you know, there is a limit to how much uh, manufacturers can, can tolerate this. I don't think it's a sustainable uh, a policy. And all of these European leaders who are uh, bragging about how much they can hit Russia are very soon going to face the wrath of their voters who are going to simply vote them out of office because nobody can deal with the economic ramification of, of, of uh, uh, rising energy prices. 
And, um, you know, we're going to see this um, in the next several months more and more. And I think we're going to have, uh, by the end of the year, very different uh, uh, rhetoric coming out of Europe. Okay, so what are the German government's plan right now to reduce oil imports from Russia, apart from stockpiling oil before the end of the year, as you just now said? Uh, first of all, we have to understand that um, oil, uh, while it is a, a, a fundable commodity, um, it comes in different forms. And, you know, when you decide how to replace a certain type of crude with another, you have to talk to your refiner and ask them what specific chemistry this oil has. Uh, so, uh, for example, uh, Russian oil is, is, is heavy, heavy crude. Um, it can be replaced with uh, uh, Venezuelan oil, but Venezuela is, is under sanctions. It could be replaced by Arabian crude, but, you know, there are problems there as well. So there aren't that many good alternatives. American crude, um, a lot of talk, people talk about American oil, but American oil is light oil, and that's not a real substitute to heavy oil coming out of of. Uh, uh, Russia. I'm not going to go into a, a chemistry lesson here, uh, but uh, there are a lot of uh, technical issues that have to do with the replacement of one crude uh, with another. Uh, it's not impossible, but it takes time. It takes money. Uh, refiners have to invest millions of dollars in, in various retrofits. Uh, but over time, I think it can be done again, but not tomorrow morning. I see. Well, another issue occupying the German leaders is Putin's demand that unfriendly countries pay their gas in rubles. Poland and Bulgaria refused to do so, and their gas supplies were cut last week. And Olaf Scholz said that Germany must be prepared for the possibility that Germany could be the next. So could Germany be next, and do you think it can survive without Russian gas? Well, um, it could sure be next. But that goes into Putin's uh, calculus. You know, is Putin, uh, is it in his interest to really uh, bring down the German economy to its knees? Uh, because let's not forget that Germany has been, of all the European countries, the sort of the more, uh, let's put it this way, the more moderate mm -hmm. voice. Um, and I'm not sure that Putin would want to alienate um, the last uh, remaining uh, country that, that could... Uh, uh, not, not side with him, but uh, sympathize with him a little bit. So I'm not sure that he would want to do it. Um, whether Germany can survive without Russian gas, the answer is absolutely no. Uh, they cannot. And I don't think it will be a situation of complete cessation of, or complete termination of the supply of gas, uh, but there may be some disruptions. There may be some lowering of the volumes of gas, that kind of thing we could see. I don't see a scenario in which one day uh, uh, Putin decides to stop gas supply to Germany altogether. That will be a catastrophic disaster for, for, for the Russian economy. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the European Union insisted that it would not cede to Moscow's demand that imports be paid in rubles, and it told member states on Monday to prepare for a possible complete breakdown in gas supplies from Russia. But it is reported that some European gas buyers have already paid for supplies in rubles. I mean, how is this testing the unity of the European Union? Well, let me say one thing about the European Union. The European Union is a very important institution, 
but there is nothing in the agreement that was made uh, when all of these European countries submitted themselves to the EU. Nothing there uh, said that the EU has the right to commit suicide on behalf of its members. And I think that uh, we will see a lot of pushback. Uh, let's not forget that every European country has, it, has its own unique situation. Not all European countries are the same. Uh, some countries have, for example, more uh, LNG uh, receiving terminals. For example, a country like Italy, uh, which is uh, located uh, along uh, two seas, can, can, it has the, the infrastructure that allows it to receive LNG. Uh, Black Sea countries are in more difficult situations because it's very hard to move LNG through the Bosphorus. Uh, right now, it's not even possible. So, you know, every country has its own unique considerations. I don't think that the EU can sort of rule on behalf of all the countries. Uh, and if they try to do it, I think there'll be a very serious pushback, which could even even lead to a, a fracture without the, within the European Union, uh, because in the end of the day, people need to survive economically. The manufacturing sector is already in a terrible situation in Europe, there's a limit to how much you can uh, oppress the people and how much you can demand from them, uh, uh, even if it's for a noble cause like Ukraine. Yes, but um, I mean, overall speaking, do you think sanctioning Russian energy could force Russia to pull back from Ukraine, or do you feel that it, it will only hurt ordinary Russians and will not let Putin change his mind? I think it's a very, very hollow uh, solution. It will do nothing, nothing. And I really think that there is nothing that can be done today to change Putin's view. He will fight uh, till the end. Uh, there is only diplomatic solution here. Um, no amount of sanctions or pressure could, could change that. Uh, we've seen much smaller countries like North Korea, like Iran, uh, which have been under sanctions for decades. And there has not been any change in their behavior um, when the stakes were much lower. So um, the thought that you can just by pure economic pressure cause Putin uh, to change his uh, calculations is very naive. And the only, uh, the only casualties of this policy will be the, the, the people of Europe. Uh, they will be the, the, the main casualties of all of this because you know, when you're uh, in the manufacturing sector and, and Europe depends a lot on manufacturing and you lose your competitive edge, it's impossible to uh, replace your your position in the market um, and uh, companies are going to shut down. Uh, we'll see more and more supply chain problems. Uh, I think it's a, it's a very, very uh, counterproductive and self-defeating approach to the problem. Only diplomacy can solve this problem, not more pressure. Yes, thank you, Gao Luft, Director of Center for World Political Economy at Austin Technical University in Turkey. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has embarked on a three-country tour of Europe, beginning with Germany, as the West continues its charm offensive amid India's neutral position on Ukraine. 
German Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced that his country will make 10 billion euros available for bilateral cooperation with India in the coming years after talking with Narendra Modi in Berlin on Monday. Scholz has also invited Modi as a special guest to the G7 Leader Summit next month. Modi's travels take him to Denmark on Tuesday, where he is due to participate in the India-Nordic Summit, with leaders also from Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway and Sweden. He will head to France on Wednesday, where he will meet with newly re-elected French President Emmanuel Macron. For more, we are now joined on the line by Professor Swara Singh, Chairman of Center for International Politics, Organization and Disarmament at Jehala Nehru University. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so what do you think Modi is looking for through his trip in Europe? Uh, first of all, uh, uh, it is post-pandemic uh, revival of Prime Minister Modi's uh, usual hectic, uh, hyperactive uh, uh, diplomacy, uh, where he likes to uh, have uh, as many meetings as possible. Now, for example, in these three days, he's going to meet uh, eight national leaders. Uh, he's holding 50 meetings. Uh, hundreds of Indian uh, diaspora people, business people, and that kind of hectic diplomacy, which uh, was normal for him before the pandemic, is being revived. And now Europe, uh, of course, is uh, very important for India for many reasons. Uh, European Union together, uh, obviously, is the third largest uh, trading partner for India after China and United States. And of course, many countries in Europe, he's visiting Germany, Denmark and France. Uh, Germany is the largest economy uh, in, uh, in European Union and the sixth largest uh, uh, trading partner for India, seventh largest investor. Uh, likewise, uh, you know, uh, other countries, uh, particularly the opportunity he has to meet uh, five Nordic uh, national leaders uh, in one summit meeting tomorrow. Uh, United States is the only other country that has such a summit meeting with five Nordic uh, countries uh, uh, in, in one go. This is the second meeting of that kind. This was supposed to happen in June of uh, last year, but obviously because the pandemic was uh, delayed. So it's a revival of uh, Prime Minister's uh, uh, diplomacy, which sometimes we call fly-by-night diplomacy, very hectic pace of uh, meetings. And in that sense, uh, it marks uh, the beginning of a post-pandemic uh, era in that sense for India's foreign policy. Mm -hmm. But of course, uh, the, the primary focus, let me close by saying, uh, of this entire visit, if we have to pick and choose one area, I, I think it's focus on uh, green technologies, climate change uh, focus, uh, other than economic relationship. Of course, from European side, I'm sure Ukrainian crisis will be important issue that they would like to discuss with Indian Prime Minister. Yes, um, as you said, this trip comes against the backdrop of the tensions over India's uh, neutral position on the Ukraine conflict. So will Modi also use this trip to explain uh, India's position to the uh, European leaders? Uh, indeed, I think uh, uh, increasingly already uh, there has been perhaps greater appreciation of India's proactive uh, neutrality where India does not wish to stand on any of the two sides, either with the United States or with Russia, but proactive because India is constantly uh, talking to all the big leaders, uh, trying to see if they can begin to have a direct conversation to bring 
the violence in Ukraine uh, immediately to an end. So in that sense, proactive also in providing humanitarian assistance. There is a greater appreciation of India's uh, proactive diplomacy, particularly in Europe, because Europe has also stood at uh, a certain variance from United States' very, very vehement campaign against uh, Prime, uh, President Putin, uh, to be specific, and Russia in general, using sanctions uh, in a campaign. But Europe itself has uh, a sort of variation in terms of how it wishes to engage with this crisis uh, as an as entire continent. Then within Europe, countries have had their own differences. So they are in the, that case able to appreciate that India also has its own position, which uh, India thinks suits it best and represents its uh, tradition. So I think this is going to be an opportunity for Indian Prime Minister to exchange those uh, notes and uh, together think how they can contribute to bringing those crises to an end as soon as possible. Okay, but the thing is, uh, not only has India refrained from uh, over overt criticism of Russia, but it also purchased discounted Russian oil when the West is trying to cripple Russia's economy through sanctions. Uh, but it looks that India's relationship with the West is still strong. Uh, and I mean, um, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen just uh, met with Modi last week, and also uh, Boris Johnson also flew to New Delhi to talk about trade ties. How can India buy Russian oil on the one hand and still be friends with the West on the other? Thank you, Joy, for asking that very interesting question to me. Uh, Sometimes it looks like a puzzle that uh, how can India continuously buy oil from Russia, which seems to be uh, not really appreciated, particularly in the United States, and still manage to have relationship more or less uh, going fine uh, with European nations, with the United States, and of course with Russia. Uh, there is no doubt uh, that India has been very careful in calibrating. Uh, you remember in the last uh, uh, two plus two meeting in Washington, D.C. of India's defense and foreign minister. The Indian foreign minister had said it very, very openly that the kind of uh, oil that India is purchasing in one month, and he spoke of March month, uh, he said the European nations are buying that kind of oil in one afternoon. Uh, in fact, same kind of quantity China is buying in three to four days. Uh, so I assume that there is a, a very conscious effort to take that opportunity, uh, because India is enormously dependent on importing oil, which is uh, prices are fluctuating, going uh, high, uh, and uh, Russia is an old friend, but India is buying the kind of quantities that would keep India under the radar in that sense, not really pushing United States uh, in such a manner where United States has to express its anger and take some action. Uh, but uh, buying quantities, you know, it's basically from 1% of total imports of India to now going up to 3% of India's total imports. So in that sense, I think it's a very carefully calibrated uh, restrained strategy of uh, purchasing Russian oil, which uh, I think both Russia understands and then the West also perhaps understands that. Okay, so uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has also invited Modi as a special guest to the G7 Leaders Summit next month. How do you look at this move? And that, I think, uh, is a, a recognition of India's uh, economic potential. Uh, the mention you made earlier of uh, European Union and uh, uh, European Commission President coming to India or uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of UK, coming to India, before that the uh, Japanese Prime Minister uh, 
foreign minister wang yi came to delhi survey lover of the russian foreign minister came i assume these are increasing the recognition of india's potential and therefore this is not the first time you would remember earlier france had also invited india as a special invitee to g7 summit in 2017 or 18 and then last year uh, united kingdom had invited uh, at glasgow uh, indian uh, prime minister uh, joined uh, online in that case of course uh, likewise uh, germany is inviting india to join as a special invitee to g7 summit based on not just indian but international monetary fund also is saying that india's growth rate is going to be 8% plus so it's going to be one of the fastest growing large economies and they want to therefore engage india as a potential market for investments and trade and other things uh, and it's uh, simply that recognition that uh, makes uh, one after summit meetings of g7 countries invite india to sit and uh, you know, sort of deliberate uh, on various issues and g7 as you know now discusses uh, all kinds of issues not just economic issues but issues of climate change issues of uh, international security so ukraine i'm sure again will be an issue in coming g7 meeting in case the crisis have not uh, come to an end already before that or how to handle post crisis situation in reconstruction of ukraine in that sense so i assume that is a kind of a recognition of india as mm. a, a potentially at least very very uh, kind of uh, important economic country to engage yes thank you professor swara singh from jawaharlal nehru university You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. International Monetary Fund Deputy Managing Director Kenji Okamura says that inflation may turn out to be even faster than global central bankers currently anticipate. He says the risk is rising. Meanwhile, the U.S. Federal Reserve has begun to raise interest rates to quell its highest inflation in decades. So will this solve the problem? Will the Fed's aggressive efforts to tackle inflation have long-lasting and negative impacts for the rest of the world? For more on this, Zhao Yang spoke with Andy Mock, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. So first, Andy, the IMF Deputy Managing Director Okamura warns that inflation may be faster than expected. What's your take and what are some of the main reasons for the high inflation in the U.S. and around the world? Well, uh, Zhao Yang, I think we really are in a very, very challenging period from a macroeconomic perspective, precisely uh, because inflation is rising far, far faster uh, than many uh, central bankers and uh, certainly American policymakers uh, had believed would be possible. And, you know, to try to understand why this is happening, I think uh, the most important factor uh, was the American fiscal response to uh, the COVID pandemic in that this really uh, flooded uh, the country with liquidity, with, with a lot of money. And of course, you know, from the basic principles of economics, uh, with a fixed supply of goods, if you add a lot more money, of course, prices will go up. And of course, that means inflation. So I think this is um, one of the unexpected and unintended consequences of uh, the overstimulation uh, in response to COVID. And of course, there have been other factors as well that have only exacerbated this. And I think one very important uh, exacerbating factor is, uh, I think, the uh, American authorities uh, really engaged in a little bit of wishful thinking, you know, for a period of more than a year, uh, 
you know, the Biden administration, the Federal Reserve were saying that inflation is just transitory. And now I think that they're really caught between a rock and a hard place with the Fed having to play catch up and the Biden administration facing a very, very dire uh, year in the midterm uh, congressional elections coming up. And this possibly uh, could be disastrous for them in 2024 as well. Mm. And the U.S. Federal Reserve now began to raise the interest rates to tackle the inflation issue. But will it solve the U.S. problem? And how will it impact the small businesses in the U.S.? Well, again, I think this is um, an inherently challenging problem for any country to face. But we've seen also that the U.S. Uh, has had a pattern of solving one problem to only create worse problems uh, down the line. And, you know, I mentioned the, uh, the response to the pandemic, and we may see something similar here as well. Uh, you know, a lot of economic analysts, uh, politicians are worried about, uh, quote unquote, stagflation, where the United States and maybe the country, the world as a whole, uh, ex-China, excluding China, uh, might see a period of both high inflation and low or even negative economic growth, which is the worst of both possible worlds. So, uh, you know, there's still a, a sliver of hope that uh, these problems created. But again, I think it's a, it's a, it's a tremendously concerning time. Mm, and some economists say that tariffs cut on Chinese imports can help to ease the high U.S. inflation. So what do you think about that? Well, you know, I certainly hope that this is on the high up on the priority list of the Biden administration uh, to be seen as taking proactive, positive steps to uh, address inflation in the United States. Uh, certainly, uh, this would lower, uh, reduce pricing pressure. Uh, it would be good for the profits of American companies. And I think it would also help improve uh, the state of U.S.-China relations. So certainly uh, there seems to be little downside uh, for the Biden administration doing this. So I hope, again, that it is something that they're seriously considering and that they see as uh, you know, something that uh, really is uh, one of these rarities uh, in politics in that, you know, there really isn't much downside. And we found that uh, the U.S. Treasury yields topped 3% for the first time since the year 2018. So what does it tell us about? Well, I think it's indicative of several things. So first of all, uh, the Central Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, has indicated very, very clearly that uh, they will take action uh, originally, I think they were looking at quarter point interest rate increases. Now it seems almost a certainty that the next one will be half a point. The one after that may be another half point. So uh, at the very least, I think the market is responding and pushing up uh, yields on U.S. government securities. So um, and this, of course, is more than just a domestic uh policy response. This could have, again, grave implications for countries around the world. So this is something, again, I think uh, everyone around the world that follows uh, these very important issues is watching with uh, probably some degree of trepidation. Mm -hmm. And also some economists are concerned that the aggressive efforts by the U.S. Federal Reserve will make the third world or emerging markets debt become more difficult to service. So how do you think about that? So uh, by raising U.S. interest rates, of course, what that does is 
that creates greater demand uh, for investors around the world looking for yield or higher interest rates. And what this means then is that the debt of emerging markets, uh, countries uh, that in the past might have found it relatively easy to raise money, now will find it more, well, more expensive at least, and perhaps difficult if not impossible. So this could have a uh, very, very negative impact on the health of many emerging countries around the world. But we also have to recognize that it can also trigger a crisis as well. So if there is a sudden uh, outflow of capital from certain countries, as we've seen during the Asian financial crisis, um, that that not only uh, can cause uh, financial problems, but it can cause also political problems and even uh, lead to instability. And when we couple this uh, with the unfortunate events in, in, in Ukraine, that there's also a food shortage, there's a looming fertilizer shortage, there may be uh, an energy shortage as well, and of course the prices of all these commodities have increased dramatically, that this... Welcome back. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, May 8th, and the early morning hours of Monday, uh, May 9th, uh, 2022, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And, of course, if you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with uh, the sound of Detroit's own jazz guitarist uh, Kenny Burrell uh, from uh, his album entitled Freedom from 1963. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.